everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, a podcast coming to you by way of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Teaching and Learning. Uh, and first off, you know, with so many different things that are going on in today's society, you know, I can't get started with this podcast or this episode without recognizing two things. That one, that it is Black History Month. So, um, you know, to to all of my African, African-American brothers and sisters and those who are displaced around the world, uh, I want to let you all know that I see you, I hear you, uh, and I also celebrate you all as well. Too often the the community, the African-American, the, the African community is often thought of in terms of the, uh, the, the challenges and the issues that are going on, but there's so much life and spirit and celebration that can be had as it relates to, to the African, African-American community. So I want to, you know, give a special shout out to my black brothers and sisters and those who do not identify along the gender binary all over the world. The other thing with that too, is that I also want to take a moment of silence for Tyree Nichols, the young African-American man who was brutally murdered by Memphis police in an incident that was caught on video. And that video has been, you know, surfacing all around the country and, and, and globally as well. But I want to go ahead and take just a few moments of silence for us to, to, you know, honor his life as, as well as, you know, the continued fight for racial equality, as well as, you know, anti-police brutality. So please join me. Thank you. Now, as we are engaging in the month of February, I thought that it would be really important for us to have a conversation really focused on the idea or the aspect or the theory really of racial identity development. And I couldn't think of anybody else that I would want to have this particular conversation with than someone I also completed my doctoral degree with. And in doing that, you know, I want to bring forth a recording actually. So Aaron and I, Dr. Baker and I recorded this conversation about a year and a half ago. And this is just prior to him completing his doctorate. This was actually recorded on my own personal, <laughs> my own personal podcast. So it's not like, you know, we're taking anything and then using it, you know, on a third party platform or, or whatever it is that, you know, it's not going to be any type of issue because it's actually audio <laughs> that, that I have previously recorded and that he's also okay with. But I wanted to have this conversation and, 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 and show this and uh, for all of our listeners and, and display that, I guess, you know, play this for all of our listeners, because Dr. Baker and I had a really great conversation, and I think that a lot of the things that he pulled out of his dissertation, as well as the things that he just generally knows about racial identity development, as well as culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy, are just really essential to what we need today, especially as the university system, the CU system, just completed the biennial social justice summit, right? And we had a phenomenal speaker and Dr. Bettina Love, who spoke greatly about, you know, where we need to go and talking about, you know, how only love is going to get us out of a lot of the issues that we are currently in, not 
reform and not police and not policy, but, you know, just loving one another and, and ultimately what that looks like. Right. So I thought that it'd be a great opportunity to bring in a conversation again, that's been previously recorded by myself and Dr. Baker um, to, you know, let our listeners hear a little bit more about why this work is so important, where this work is, is certainly uh, needed and, and what it's really going to take for us to create culturally responsive, anti-racist, uh, racially conscious learning spaces for all of our educators. So without further ado, let me go ahead and then introduce you all to Dr. Aaron Allen Baker and then hit play on the recording that we had. So Dr. Aaron Allen Baker is an assistant professor of educational foundations at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, where he is currently in his first year in the position. Prior to arriving at UW-Stevens Point, Dr. Baker and I were doctoral students in the Foundations of Education program at the University of Toledo. He has served as an adjunct professor at Lords University in Ohio in the Graduate School of Education and the Academic Skills and as the Academic Skills Coordinator for their Upward Bound program. Prior to pursuing his PhD, Dr. Baker earned a bachelor's degree in English Literature and an Executive MBA all three of his degrees coming by way of the University of Toledo. So when I tell you that this man is a rocket, he is a rocket. His research interests lie in the sociology of education, critical race theory, and racial identity development and pre-service teacher programs. He has collaborated actively with other graduate students and professors, publishing articles and book chapters, uh, notably in Richard Milner and, uh, and Richard Milner and Wayne Ross's Race, Ethnicity, and Education. In addition to his academic pursuits, Dr. Baker served as the executive director of Aspire, a cradle to career initiative in Lucas County in Ohio, which unites, unites excuse me, community partners and families through data to enhance the healthy development of all children. He also served as assistant vice president for government relations at the University of Toledo, where he forged and facilitated a relationship between the university, school districts, and both state and local legislators for over five years. So it's my pleasure for you all to be invited into this really, really great conversation, and I hope that you all enjoy it. I am so excited to invite today's guest onto uh, the podcast. Um, Aaron is one of my most favorite people in the entire world. Like when I say that, I literally mean that. Uh, Aaron. Aaron Baker is a doctoral candidate at the University of Toledo in the Social Foundations of Education program, along with myself. In 2019, Aaron moved into the office suite that I was in. And even though he and I had had like a couple of classes together, uh, we hadn't necessarily like talked that much. So I wouldn't say that we knew each other super well, but we definitely knew each other. Once we began sharing that office, things just really took off from there. We began sharing <laughs> books with each other. Uh, we began talking through like a lot of our assignments together, some of the struggles with, with some of those faculty members, uh, working on our class presentations and projects, and just naturally growing as friends as well. I can honestly say to all of you that Aaron is very much one of my best friends and is very much like a brother to me. So, you know, whether personal, professional, Aaron has consistently been there for me, and I'm so proud to be able to call him my friend. Sorry, Aaron, I know that that was like, you didn't know that all that was coming. <laughs> I, I, ready to... I appreciate that. And the feeling is mutual. I mean, <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of respect and admiration for you. And definitely, 
count you among my best friends. And I, and I like that you said brother, because that, that, that may be, that's probably the best description, I think, for me. I, I really appreciate that. See, we're, we're both getting ready to tear up here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that, now I'll get to your official uh, professional uh, introduction. So as I previously said, Aaron Baker is a doctoral candidate at the University of Toledo in the Social Foundations of Education program, where he also minors in educational psychology. His research interests include critical theories of uh, critical theories just in general, but more related to uh, critical race theory, critical whiteness theory, uh, things of that nature. Racial identity development is also along uh, his research interests, as well as the social context of education and culturally responsive and culturally relevant pedagogy. He has previously served as an adjunct professor and academic skills coordinator at Lord's University for the Upward Bound program. And he has also been an instructor in the Diversity and Contemporary Society course in the Judith Erb College of Education at the University of Toledo. He's been an English teacher in K-12, and he also has an executive MBA. He's worked in higher education. Aaron has, like, literally done it all. And it also makes me think, like, man, what do you want to do? <laughs> like, where does it stop for this guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... That's a good question. I, I think that in this this next act of my life, I, I fully expect to be uh, a professor. I want I want to uh, be engaged in research and and I want to teach. Um, and so that I I think that this all of those things that you described, I think they sort of for my my personal experience where I've lived this, they all sort of flow to this this place where I am right now. So I'm really, I'm excited about the, the potential uh, for the next few years um, and having the opportunity to do some important work and, and to continue working with you, writing with you and uh, presenting with you as well. Awesome. No, I, pre- I appreciate that. Um, you and I are both like, you know, also in the process of, of uh, applying for, you know, professor, assistant professor positions and everything as well. It is really weird, you know, that that's how you know two people are like really close because we're applying for like the same positions, but we're also just like, hey, did you catch this one? Like make sure you did, <laughs> make sure you put your name in the hat for like that one. Uh so that's how you know that you have a really good bond with somebody when I'm not even upset that we're applying for the same positions. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. I feel exactly the same way. We have to look out for each other. For sure. For sure. Now let's jump into some of your work. Now in the foundations program. One of the one of the things that we learn is that young people largely learn about principles of social responsibility, how to treat each other and democracy in three ways or really in three areas through their family, through faith or religion. If there is a faith and religion embedded in the family uh, and also through schools as such, young people learn very early on how to treat people, how to care for people, how to identify right and wrong through the ways that they are taught in these settings, as well as through their personal observations of others and how other people treat each other as well. In short, learning these concepts is quite literally a social process. So I believe this is part of the reason that schooling is important. As you've taught pre-service teachers, what are some of the concerns you have with the next generation of K-12 through educators and their ability to make connections to social challenges like oppression? It's a great question. And it links directly, I'd say, to uh, 
the research I'm engaging in right now. Um, I, among my my highest concerns right now is that we're when I say we, I mean teacher preparation programs specifically that we are preparing uh, teachers, and in the case of my research, uh, white teachers in particular. We can talk about that a little a little bit later. Um, but to be culturally responsive, and what I'm what I'm seeing so far in my research is that we're not doing s such a, a great job with that. So I, you know, I um, what what I'm concerned with is that what we understand from the, the literature and the research is that. There are, there are really two primary ideologies that, that guide the way that uh, teachers work in classrooms on related on issues related to race and culture and so forth. So there's a colorblind ideology, and then there's a, a multi, multicultural sort of education ideology. And the colorblind ideology is sort of a, a, a post-racism ideology where people uh, believe and behave in ways uh, in, in alignment with this belief that um, race just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have an impact on social or academic or uh, financial or, or, or on any outcomes whatsoever. And that this is concerning uh, because we, we know as researchers, as people who study education, educational outcomes, that that simply isn't true. That, you know, the, 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 the structure of our schools and our teacher preparation programs and so forth, uh, along with some of the, the behaviors that the folks within those institutions um, engage in, uh, have, can have negative impacts on, on students of color. I mean, the, the bottom line is that research tells us very clearly that even when people believe that they're, they're treating students fairly and equally, the fact is that they favor white students, white boys in particular, um, and it, it just has a negative impact on outcomes for students of color. And... I mean, it's not a, a huge leap to, you know, to say that this, there's, there's some social reproduction involved in that. So what happens is these, these teachers um, treat students of color in a different way and they have different outcomes. Well, then ultimately they're, they're put in a place where it's, it's, it's more challenging for them to succeed and they continue to be marginalized and then they, 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 pass on those experiences to their children and then they go back into the school systems and the, and the same thing sort of, sort of happen all over them. So I'm, I'm really concerned that we're not preparing our teachers well and um, we need to really have a, a better understanding of some of the factors that are involved in uh, when we educate our teachers. That the delimit them or, or inhibit them from becoming uh, the, the kind of culturally responsive educators that we need. Yeah, I like that you just mentioned the word delimit, you know, talking about the boundaries as well. Um, 
And what you just stated is a perfect segue into this next question, which is regarding the work that you're currently doing. So you and I are 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 in the same at technically we're at the same stage at the ABD level. Um you're we're both in the process of writing our dissertations, but you're a little bit ahead of me as far as you're actually in the process of collecting data. So you're officially studying, which is amazing. Your dissertation is entitled, unless you've changed it recently, but Climates for Preparing Culturally Responsive Educators, a Multi-Level Approach for Understanding Relationships Between Teacher Preparation Programs. It's it's a long title. It is. (laughs) You know, that's the one thing that I love about looking at and listening to people's dissertation titles because they're always just so they sound super profound. And your study really is very much profound. But I always love listening to people's dissertation titles because you also have to make it creative as well. Uh, but tell us about what your study, like, tell us what your study is about and what inspired your particular research question. What what I'm what I'm doing is what I'm, I'm looking at is the relationship between the the racial climate and teacher preparation programs and the racial identity development specifically of white pre-service teachers. And so another way to think about that is I'm, I'm trying to understand if there's a relationship between um, how uh, positive or antagonistic um, teacher preparation programs are in relationship to racial issues and how that is related to um, the, the capacity for pre-service teachers to become culturally responsive educators. Uh, and uh, and uh, I, I'm looking at racial identity um, specifically because literature um, sort of confirms that in order for, for people, not just, not just white students, all students, students of color, in order for them to be culturally responsive, they have to develop uh, sophisticated and, and anti-racist racial identities. So I, I thought that focusing on the racial identity would be a nice way to to get at that. My, I, I think like um, for all of us as researchers, uh, I think about what inspired me to do this particular research study. I think all of us as researchers, there's there's usually some some sort of personal connection, some sort of personal experience. Um, and then a link to reading things that you've read or research that you've come across. And, and so for me, my personal experience as um, as a person of color, you know, as, as an African-American student going through, uh, through my education um, and interacting with primarily uh, white teachers, you know, which, which is the norm, but many of whom, you know, I didn't have this language then, but now I would say we're we're not very culturally responsive. So there there was my that personal experience, and I think about how that affected me over the years. And then also, you know, I, I came across a lot of literature that that talks about that. Uh, Christine Sleater, uh, for example, an, an article that she wrote. Uh, had a real impact on on my thinking about this because ultimately what she says is teacher preparation programs actually state that one of their missions is to prepare students to be culturally responsive and to embrace democratic values and so forth. 
However, that's just not what happens. And she, and that's the, 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 the problem that she points to. Why is it that even when we say we're focusing on this, we're producing largely just uh, white pre-service teachers who are, are not prepared to work with, with students of different races and, and culture than their own. So that, that's, I mean, that's really the, 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 my, the fundamental inspiration for that. Okay, now I'm going to hone in on some quantitative language, even though I'm a qualitative researcher and I had a very poor time in the two... <laughs> In the two quantitative classes that I, that I was in. So even though your study is looking at teacher preparation programs and the environments for producing culturally responsive teachers, there is one variable. Now, that's, that's the quantitative language. That, there's one variable in particular that you are focusing on or that I believe of, of all of the variables that I believe is really important, and that is race. Your study is looking at how white teachers in particular are learning to become culturally responsive educators. First, please define for us what you mean by culturally responsive and then share why it's important for, for us at this point to focus on white, white educators in particular. That's a, that's a great question. So when I, when I talk about culturally responsive, it's for me... Um, I, I'm bringing together um, a, a few, I'll say, um, asset-based um, pedagogies, like culturally responsiveness, culturally relevant, and um, they're more, even more contemporary ways of thinking about it. it might be abolitionist um, and so forth. But primarily, these are all uh, critical pedagogies. And the idea is that, um, and this, this, this idea comes largely from Geneva Gay and Gloria Latson Billings, but it's this idea that when we teach all, all of our teaching, first, it must yield academic success. And then also, we must help students develop positive ethnic and cultural identities while also enhancing their academic achievement. And then, um, and perhaps, and most importantly, in the context of our conversation, is that our teaching, it really should, it should promote students, their capacity to recognize, to understand, and critique, and ultimately uh, change social inequalities. And so, for, and, and there are, I mean, a lot of, of, of states actually have, have uh, requirements for their teachers to feel related to um, cultural responsiveness. Um, and, and, and among them are, you know, this teachers are, are sort of, they're required to be able to demonstrate a capacity to reflect on their own cultural lenses. Um, they're, they're required to be able to demonstrate that they can model and have high expectations for all of their students and, and, and promote respect for uh, cultural and racial and sort of differences among their students and so forth. So all, all of those, all of those factors, when I'm talking about cultural responsiveness, all of those factors, all those elements um, come together. Um, and then that really gets at the core uh, of what I mean and why I think it's so important. 
And you were asking specifically that the second part was about why white teachers in particular. Yeah, why white teachers in particular. And I think that I, so I think I know like one half of it or one part of the, of the concern because we have this, and you probably know about the exact percentage, but we have an overwhelming population of educators that are, who are white. And then you also have white women that also overly represent that community as well. So I think that that's an important piece of it. And I think that kind of gets into it as well. You want to expound on that? Teachers of color, when I'm doing a, a quantitative study, it's difficult to generate uh, a sample that I could I could actually study and and and, and um, have any sort of ability to look for a power or to be able to look at significance. I mean, that's how small the number of of uh, teachers of color there are relative to white teachers. Yeah, and then this. So with what you just said, and it sparked um, another question for me, which is, you know, typically in research, some folks look at. And it depends on the type of researcher that you are. So some people are quantitative and then there are other folks who are more qualitative researchers. So qualitative, you know, being able to kind of have more of an explanation around a phenomenon or descriptors and things like that and being able to describe a situation as well. One thing that you're what that you're saying is how we, you know, teachers being prepared to teach certain groups of students and being able to prepare to teach students how to do certain things. How would you qualify that word prepared in the work that you are doing? So when you talk about having teachers that are prepared, what would you describe as being prepared to to be an effective teacher today? In terms of a, a quantitative, like a variable, I guess, to try to describe that, when I'm saying prepared, I am I'm looking specifically at the racial identity development. And so the idea being that, um, I think as I, I might have said this a little bit earlier, but in order for, for these pre-service teachers in my study to be culturally responsive, and this is according to the literature, not, not just me, um, but in order for them to be culturally responsive, they have to reach the final stages of racial identity development status. And ideally, the final stage, which is called autonomy, and in this stage, um, this means that the the people, in this case, pre-service teachers in particular, they have developed racial identities um, that enable them to recognize systemic uh, biases, and not just race, by the way, but but but, uh, systemic biases in general. Um, and to have the will to actually challenge those biases and do something about them. And they also, you know, the, the, another aspect of this is that they are, they are comfortable in whatever their race is and comfortable enough to be critical of that and, and to recognize yeah. not all, all, Black people or white people or Asian people are the same, and um, all of us have faults, and all of us, you know, excel in some way. But to be able to uh, understand that and appreciate that, and um, and not demonize people of different races and cultures 
in order to elevate your own race pride. That's another significant aspect of that. So, so when I'm talking about being prepared, I'm saying that um, if they're if they are to be effective, dealing with and really educating and and valuing their students of different races and cultures, they have to get to that stage. That to me, if they get to that stage, then they're ready, then they're prepared to do that. Yeah, and you just mentioned, so of course, the theoretical framework that you are largely engaged in within your study is racial identity development. And I want listeners to to understand that when you talk about racial identity development, there are two tracks of it. So you have the one track for those who are white, and then you have the other track for those essentially who are non-white, specifically because we're focusing on on white educators at this point. Can you talk to us, because you mentioned that the last stage is autonomy. Can you kind of briefly introduce us to what the uh, what the stages are or, or the steps are within racial identity development and just, you know, how how folks would would navigate that process? Sure. And, and you're right. So there are. Uh, and so this so this um, the theory that I am um, relying on of racial identity development, it comes from. Uh, a professor, a researcher, an educational psychologist, actually uh, named Janet Helms, and she's been working on on this on this theory um, since the really the seventies, but specifically the nineties. Um, of her work uh, really sort of exploded, and her idea is that so for 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 white people that their racial identity. Um, develops in in two broad phases, like a, and each phase has three different statuses. And I'll talk a little bit about what those are. But the first phase that uh, white um, people have to navigate through is called the abandonment of racism phase, and the second phase is about becoming anti-racist, um, and, and so the first the first phase has there are three statuses. Um, the first one is called um, what is it? Contact, and contact is associated with color blindness. So people who are in this stage, generally, they um, have just a very li- limited awareness that race matters in any way. And then the next stage is called disintegration, and that's when they're introduced. They recognize that there's a difference, and it starts to affect the way that they think about the world. And then there's reintegration, and I, I won't go into great detail about each and every one of the statuses. Um, but but what I'll say is that these these statuses are recursive, and so this is not like a, a linear process where you start in one place and then you. You just move all the way through and you reach the end and like you've made it, you're, you're anti-racist or whatever. This is cyclical and, and, and people can be in more than one status at a time. Um, and in any given moment, you know, people might express uh, different parts of different statuses that they're in. Um, 
the, the central concern for people of color in their racial identity development status is it's a little it's different than that uh, for white people. Um, so because white people, it's about abandoning racism, as I've said, and for people of color, it's about giving up these feelings of internalized oppression. So, and then the, sec the second phase is similar. It's about developing a, a healthy and anti-racist racial identity development. I don't know if that, if, if that helps. No, it definitely does. And I appreciate you pointing out the piece about, you know, it's recursive. It's, it's not a linear process because, as you know, my work that I'm doing right now focuses on the concept of the theory of anti-racism from Ibram X. Kendi. And that's one of the things that he talks a lot about in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is that at any given moment, anyone can be a racist or an anti-racist, or they can do something that is racist or anti-racist. You know, you, you can be doing this work for 10 years and then you say something or do something that's offensive or that's very insensitive to the very population in which you are looking to serve. And I think part of that with being able to own that and acknowledge that is that it opens us up to the fact that we will and are likely to make mistakes in this work because he talks about, and I'm pretty sure one of the things when it comes to being an educator today, particularly as a white person or someone who's largely teaching communities whose lived experiences are different than ours, when we make a mistake, he talks about in his book that denial is the heartbeat of of racism. I would imagine that denial is the heartbeat of, 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 of discrimination. You know, every time, every time someone says something that's biased or prejudiced or, or whatever, the first thing that we want to do is not deny for the simple fact of, I didn't do that. I think it's denial because we don't want to acknowledge that we've done harm to someone and we don't want to own that behavior. The, the intent versus impact position is one of the greatest things that we all have to understand is that you can own your intent. You also have to own your impact. And it doesn't have to be intentional when we when we do harm to to other people as well. So, you know, I love the fact that you bring that up, that it's not a linear process. It, it can be recursive because we can make a lot of progress, but we can also take some steps back as well. But the the critical piece of that, one, is how we've reflected on that. And then two, how we move forward from that. You know, that's from a John Dewey standpoint as an educational philosopher, that's growth. You know, the whole goal of life and being a human being is how we grow and how we move forward. And a lot of that has to do with uh, with the ways that we reflect and how we 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 uh, we act because of the things that we've reflected on. So I, I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. And, and what you just described, that that the reflection aspect of it, it's it's a really key factor in um, how all of us develop more sophisticated racial identity de development statuses, and then specifically how you you move from. And I, I know Kendi doesn't necessarily agree with this language uh, from non a non racist identity to an anti racist identity. That critical reflection, that critical consciousness. That piece is is well, literally and figuratively critical uh, for people to to advance, um, and that and again, 
That's not to say that we don't sometimes fall back, but when you fall back, you, if you're self-aware and critical about that, you can address it. Yeah, for so. sure. For sure. Now, like I said earlier, you, you're in the process of collecting your data, so you've not made any official results or anything like that as of right now, but you and I have talked a little bit about some of the, the data that you have that you have collected. So with the question that I asked earlier about, you know, teachers recognizing social challenges facing students today, has the data that you've collected without making any, again, official statistical decisions, bringing out my quantitative lingo right now, right. <laughs> has it supported any of the, the, the previous concerns that you had uh, as an educator? Yeah, I mean, I, I can talk a little bit about the dis, the descriptive statistics that I that I've done so far. Just trying to describe the the students, the pre-service teachers, and my samples and the institutions where they are. And what I've discovered so far is that what um, Christine Sleeter and others, uh, other researchers like her, have said. You know, the fact that that the vast majority of our pre-service teachers are not prepared to be culturally responsive. That that appears to be true and, and shockingly so. So what I've seen so far is that um, 50%, well, I, 75% actually, of the, of the pre-service teachers in, in my uh, sample are in the, the fourth racial identity development status, which is called pseudo-independence, or they're, they're in that status and they have um, the other uh, less sophisticated statuses combined with, with their uh, endorsement of that particular status. And in that status, it's, it's, it's essentially what we've been talking about. They are, uh, people in that status, are, they're able to recognize that there's systemic bias, that that there that um, racism in particular um, has an, can have an impact on social and educational outcomes and so forth. However, the uh, I'll say the skill or the disposition that they're lacking is that critical self awareness, that critical consciousness, which is as we were talking about earlier, it's essential for them to be able to um, address uh, oppression of all forms when they see it in their classrooms and, and, and beyond. And, and another thing that may be even more startling is that, from my descriptive statistics, is that an additional 20% of the, the pre-service teachers in my sam sample they, they don't uh, endorse any particular racial identity development status. And what the, the literature says about that is, is, is that that is a, it's, it's like a, a pre-phase one, a pre-abandonment of racism status. And there, a lot of the research around that says that that's the most racist status that, that anybody can have. Um, and ultimately, it's that way because people in that status are um, very much 
uh, informed and their their behaviors are very much shaped by um, the, the the racial uh, uh, climate of of society. So so in our society where there is we witness regularly an awful lot of systemic racism and all sorts of implicit racial biases. Those are the things that affect the decision making, the behavior of those people in that in, in that status the most. So altogether that means that ninety-five percent or so of all the teachers in my sample are are not prepared to be culturally responsible. And I suspect that that's not all, it's not all bad news in terms of the, the fact that so many of them are in the, that fourth status. Um, to me, that presents, it's an opportunity um, for us to recognize that like we, as, as teacher educators, there needs to be a lot more focus on helping students develop um, critical self-awareness. and. To, to just to think critically, and and if we're able to do that, that could potentially make a, a pretty significant difference, um, and in, the, in these pre-service teachers' capacity uh, to work with uh, students who are of different races and cultures. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, and those are some pretty concerning numbers for sure. And I I think it's important for anyone who is who is white, non-POC, non-person of color, to acknowledge, um, you know, because it can be alarming when we hear things like, oh, you know, if I'm in this pre-stage or whatever, then I would just be identified as being racist or something like that. I think that, folks, it's helpful to know, because one of the other things that you focus on is, is critical whiteness. And critical whiteness studies is another huge area for particularly particularly folks who are white, to, igno- to acknowledge just how deep that rabbit hole is with, in terms of racism within our society. Part of that is just the historical piece of it. You know, the, the 1619 Project just came out by Hannah Nicole Jones, and I've been reading all of that. And of course, you see, it's been centuries. You know, we technically, Black people in this society have been free legally when you look at the eyes of the constitution and everything for roughly 50 years and acknowledging you know our civil rights and how we now have the liberties that white people in society have that's on the backs of 250 years of 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 legal uh enslavement within our society so when you talk about things like that you know I want listeners to also take into consideration that these aren't concepts that are just thrown out as labels, but it's built off of literature and it's built off of this history and how we've been socialized within our society as well. I think that those are some huge concepts to, to, to really uh, keep in mind as well. Uh, yeah. I, oh, go ahead. I think often when, so when we, when I use terms, when we use terms like racist and anti-racist and so forth, that people often take that, that terminology very personally, um, as you know, as if someone is calling them specifically a racist. And when we're talking about critical whiteness studies, um, what we're not talking necessarily about specific individuals. We're talking about what you're saying. We're talking about 
this this culture uh, we're talking about uh, policies, traditions, and rituals yep. um, that ha- elevate uh, white supremacy. Um, and so, not necessarily about white supremacist individuals, but just about how our as a society um, we have embraced whiteness as sort of an ideal, and the impact that that has. And when we're talking about critical whiteness, the impact that it has specifically on on white people, all of us, but specifically on white people. I love that because it centers whiteness instead of, I'll say otherness, blackness, uh, uh, different races. Because when we've done that in the in the past, when we centered blackness and otherness, it's always as a at a deficit. So it, it and and this it it, it moves. Critical whiteness moves beyond that in some situations. Now, there are plenty of people have plenty of criticism about critical whiteness theory. Um, but I, I think, at least in the context of the things that we're talking about, I think it's 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 a helpful theoretical tool um, to, to have these kind of discussions. Yeah, for sure. And the and here's the other piece of it that I recognize is that one, educators can really only do so much, and there are so many boundaries and restrictions and obligations that today's educators are required to meet. So it's, you know, it's almost as much as we are expecting educators to work on themselves. Then they also have to meet, you know, these standardized requirements where there's a whole history behind how a lot of these standardized testing and practices and, and things that we see within our educational structures are inherently racist because Going back to uh, Ibram Kendi's, Ibram Kendi's definition of anti-racist or anti-racism in and of itself, anything that is racist or is racism is anything that produces, sustains, or perpetuates racial inequity. So we have a long history of standardized practices in higher education and in K-12 education, really all levels of education that continue to reproduce racial inequity. We've not seen very many um, barrier breaking or, you know, gap breaking efforts that have actually made us a huge difference within our educational structures. And that's one of the things that I'm working on looking at in, in my work as well. So I think it's important for all of us to recognize that teachers can only do so much for the most part. You know, like I said, they find themselves challenged with with meeting pass rates and more and more teachers are working with students that are coming from families uh, whose backgrounds are, are, are high need uh, and then low resources as well. And there's just an, ex- an extreme level of pressure that are on today's educators. So throughout your research, has your research made any connections to job persistence of teachers in the face of these challenges? Because I can imagine that this would contribute to or largely influence some type of burnout. Yeah, that's a really, that's thoughtful and it's interesting. So so I'm not not focusing specifically on that, but in the literature um, that is um, supporting my my research, I I have come across um, a lot of discussions about, um, so if, if, this is another, uh, I'll say aspect of what can happen if, if teachers 
do do not become culturally responsive, do not reach that those those final stages of racial identity development says. But they do, they can grow tired and weary of of talking about and dealing with issues related to race. And over time, research shows that a lot of the teachers that have difficulty with that, they do drop out. And I, I actually just read an article a few days ago um, from an, an APA uh, journal. I think it's cultural and ethnic studies or, or, or something like that. But, but they're focusing on developing a measurement to describe what they're calling diversity fatigue. And, and basically, it's this idea that, especially right now, there's so much focus in institutions of higher education and presumably in K-12 institutions on diversity, um, equity, and inclusion that people specifically who are not comfortable talking about those sorts of things, they, they, get, they get fatigue. And um, this is the, while this article was primarily about just developing some way to measure that, um, I think it, it, it does, it points to um, some very real concerns because um, in my estimation, it's not like we're going to stop talking about these issues anytime soon, um, or at least we shouldn't stop talking about these issues anytime soon in our institutions of education, higher education and secondary and, and, and so forth. Um, and so if, if people are going to uh, be fatigued and leave, leave the uh, profession, that might create a different set of problems for us. And, and potentially, you know, it could also, there could also be some benefits associated with that as well, I suppose. There definitely, so, can, so. No, there definitely can be some benefits. And one, thank you for introducing that because I'm going to research that myself. And I'm just going to say to those who are listening that when we talk about fatigue, you know, diversity, fatigue in and of itself. People get fatigued by things that they're not conditioned to do. So it's like I, com- I compare it to <laughs> I'm, I'm much bigger than when I entered the doctoral program. You remember when I first entered it, I was like shredded and everything. But, <laughs> you know, it's just, it took a while to condition myself to being able to work out multiple times a day and lift the types of weights that I was at that point in time. Well, that's the same thing now. You know, when I think of that concept of diversity fatigue, people getting tired of talking about racism and then people getting tired of talking about sexism, people getting tired of talking about all these different inequities that are happening within our society. But people get tired of doing things that they're not used to doing. So if your lived experience hasn't condition you to focus on the least of these from a biblical concept, (laughs) uh, but the least of these and the least of the people within our society, then I can imagine that people would get naturally tired of doing that probably after the first time you have a conversation. Man, this was a lot. You know, this whole thing wore me out. (laughs) You know, Right, right. Yeah. So I would definitely, you know, encourage folks to, to work on that because here's the other thing coming out of my own work. Damon Williams, he now, I believe he works now with the Boys and Girls Club of America, but 
He used to work at the University of Wisconsin, and he literally wrote the book on the chief diversity officer and strategic diversity leadership, particularly in higher education, but just in general. And one of the things that he states is that within his work is that when you start to feel uncomfortable doing the work, that's when you are making progress. When you start to receive pushback from other folks, that's when you know progress is being made. It's because people naturally resist the things that are uncomfortable. And now people's foundation, the foundation of a lot of the systems that we have in place are really toxic. And right. they're, they're grounded in things that naturally are going to create inequities for other people. So, you know, when you start to feel fatigued, that is when you really need to keep going. The only way that you're going to increase your level of being able to have those conversations is the more you condition yourself to to be engaged in those conversations. I think that's part of the reason why whenever you whenever sometimes I've listened to folks doing diversity uh, workshops, educational workshops and things like that. And some people will say at the beginning, if you need to take a moment and step out, please feel free to step out for yourself. Some people are really some people are really against that. Because it's a privilege to walk out of a conversation because it makes you feel uncomfortable because the opposite side of that is that other folks have to continue living through that experience. As a black man myself in this world, when I get uncomfortable with someone following me around a store, the way that I can exit that conversation or the the discomfort of that is just leaving the store. But that may ultimately serve the purpose of what they were hoping that I did anyway, which was to just nice. leave the store, you know? So at the end of the day, I still got to get my groceries. So sometimes, you know, you just got to deal with work, work through like whatever you can, you know, call out that person or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, you're still being forced to endure this, uh, this bias and this prejudice, this discrimination or whatever it is that you want to throw on top of that. So, right. you, know, you know, it makes me definitely think of that for sure. So I appreciate you, bringing that part of the conversation in, because I'm definitely going to to look at that. So you know, as you know, my research focuses heavily on racism, anti-racism, as well as diversity leadership, like I just said, uh, and the ways that we are preparing educators to address social challenges. One common issue that is getting more attention is that white people tend to be more receptive to conversations like this uh, when it's coming from folks who are also white. I was reading Robin D'Angelo's uh, newest book, and for those who are unfamiliar with Robin D'Angelo, or the name at least off the top, is that she wrote the book White Fragility. And she discusses in her newest book, Nice Racism, that she's had situations where some of her colleagues who are people of color, they've invited her to settings where it's overwhelmingly white, because oftentimes the audience is more receptive to the information that's coming when it's coming from a white person. In addition, even if they do receive any type of pushback, the pushback isn't necessarily as high when it's being directed at Robin as it is the the person of color. So, you know, with you being a black man, why did you find it so important for you to, to to do this work and to have this conversation? And what can white listeners learn from hearing particularly from speakers of color and educators of color? Sure. There are many layers to that. So I would say, and I guess in a way of 
um, adding on to uh, some of the things that you just said um, and recognizing my, my place in, in this, this space uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a black man who teaches in teacher, a teacher preparation program, which is populated primarily with white female students. Right. That so I for me in that space, um I, there's I think there's a really significant value for um all students, you know, regardless of their race, to have the experience of of having a black professor, and in particular a black male professor, because there are so few. And not just professors, teachers, right? There's there there's so so few of us. And often I hear from my students. You're the first person of color I've had as a teacher on on any level, and for me, I that that's a, I, it's a, a a pretty important um, a significant sort of role. I mean, I, I take that I take that as a responsibility. Actually, I take it very seriously, and in some ways, that's probably it's it's probably not healthy, but. I recognize that in that space, um, my uh, the, the impact that I can have on these students, their uh, understanding, and their um, I don't know appreciation for having professors who are different than them. I think it weighs pretty heavily on me. Sorry about that. That's my dog over there. But um, I, I think that it's also forced me to develop kind of a different, a different sort of skill set, um, which I, I believe is based on my, the students' re, uh, evaluations that I get um, has helped me to be effective in working with uh, students who've never had black professors before, spe specifically the the white students that I have, um, and, and it's not easy. But I I think that primarily what works best for me is trying very hard to create an environment where, um, regardless of ideology, or regardless of culture or race or whatever, that the students feel safe in expressing whatever whatever views they have. Now, in, in, in a civil way, right? I mean, people can't just launch into racist or sexist diatribes or whatever, but they can express their ideological points of view. And I think what I've discovered is that if I'm successful in, in creating that, then my, my race um, becomes less of, of a factor and they're more willing to hear me. Now, they might be much much more willing to hear some of the things that I say coming from the mouth of of a white female professor. That that could be true, and I, I suspect that Don, that Robin D'Angelo is is probably right about that. But that doesn't mean that that you and I that we can't be a, a, effective that way. I, there are I, I, I know that I'm going I've gone off once more, but. A, a tangent here that's very important that that 
those students, particularly students in teacher preparation programs, have those experiences and hear from people like us, marginalized or minoritized people um, that are educated or, or, or taken on this sort of educational journey by, by people like us. Wait, so ask, ask me the, the question one more time. <laughs> you got through all that. You want me to? <laughs> but there's, there's part of it that you asked, and that I've forgotten it. That I, but I, I know that I wanted to to address. Well, the, the the main thing was asking why is it so important for white listeners to to learn to hear, particularly from speakers and educators of color, right? And right. Particularly black people as well. Yeah, I, I guess I, I addressed some of that. But yeah, I I think that um, for better or worse, in our current societal uh, context, m- many of us people of color, and when I, I'm, that's what I mean when I say many of us, we've had different sorts of life experiences, um, and we can we can speak to them in ways to to communicate and realize. Uh, some of the systemic um, differences that maybe other professors who are not minoritized cannot. And so the question is whether or not, um, I think, the students will hear that from professors of color. And I guess all of that that I was saying is that I believe that they can, but I believe that it takes it takes work on you know on behalf of the educators and um and it takes a lot of 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 work early on in the class i think for me what i've learned is like the content that i teach you know which is all related to understanding power and privilege and so forth um all of that content is very very important but what i've come to appreciate is that teaching the, the skills that we were talking about just a little while ago the, the critical self awareness Active listening, understanding the difference between um, opinion and like informed opinion or facts, those sorts of things are really important. And they really are, I mean, they're they're concepts. They're concepts that are are part of the larger discussion. And most of the students come to my class lacking um, those sorts of skills or understanding those things. And, and and that's an inhibition. It makes it difficult for them to hear things from me or from other marginalized people. So those are things that we 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 have to work on. And then that leads. So the, the things that we have to work on actually leads into a perfect last question, which is that we can't clearly leave here without a call to action. So so what now? You know, like Kevin Hart said in that stand up. You know, <laughs> what now? So what is your call to action for current and future teachers? What do they need to do to become the most effective teachers that they can be? So, I mean, based on these preliminary findings that I have from my research, um, and also some of my experiences teaching that diversity and contemporary society course, my, my call to action is really about um, critical self analysis. And, you know, I, you know that I've done it. I've done teachings about this sort of thing, and I think that, and I've always valued critical self-analysis as an important thing. 
but looking at this, the research that I've, that I've engaged in right now, I just, it is potentially one of the most important factors because it seems to be the obstacle uh, for a lot of educators to actually become culturally responsive, to become anti-racist educators. And so my call to action would be for people to research and engage in this critical self-analysis and to to work on being self-aware, understanding who you are as an educator, your your race, your culture, your your socioeconomic status, all of those, all of those things and how your lived experiences um, in given that context um, shape the way that you view the world and the way you behave and treat people. So, you know, just going back to some of the things that I said earlier, I mean, it's not enough to understand that there's systemic racism. That's not enough for educators in particular. It's, It's a good start, but it's not enough. What we really have to do is take that understanding, pair it with our own critical self-analysis and awareness, and then use what we've learned to have an impact on improving the lives of students and um, creating democratic classrooms and ultimately a democratic society um, where people are treated justly and everybody, regardless of their race or culture or gender or whatever, has an opportunity to learn and grow effectively. So that, yes, my call of action is do your best to understand and engage in critical self-analysis. Great, 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 great work. You know, so Aaron, again, thank you so much for coming on to Transformative Ideas. You are the very first guest that I've brought on to uh, this uh, this podcast. And it was for a reason. Because I love your work. I love your commitment to to the work as well. I love your passion behind the work as well. And you're always so thoughtful, also always so reflective. And I would encourage all listeners to to be on the lookout for things that are coming from Aaron as well. He does have some publications that are out there, some things that are also in the works. And I can't wait to see the way that you're going to transform the ways in which folks are teaching students today. Um, so again, you know, is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap up? No, I mean, after that, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I would, uh, again, say the same thing about your work. It is, you know, as, as we progress closer to, uh, I'll, I'll say being officially acknowledged as, as, uh, doctors of philosophy and education and so forth. Um, which gives us entree into spaces where people will really take our work seriously. I, I think that um, your contributions are going to make a really significant difference. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what you bring as well. Oh. And, th- and thank you. I mean, I was really honored to be invited to for, you know, participate in this conversation. I always learn something. And um, yeah, so thank you. No problem. All love.